Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Meg. I'm the host of the channel, and today we're talking to Elle Dowd about her new book, Baptized in Tear Gas, From Might Water It to Abolitionist. Elle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh my gosh, we're so thrilled to have you. Okay, so I discovered Elle through my friend and Instagram reverend, Father Lizzie McManus-Dale. For the rest of the listeners, I'm wondering if you could begin our interview by just telling us a bit about yourself, especially since this is more of a memoir book. Maybe tell us about who you are and what inspired you to write Baptized in Tear Gas. Yes, uh, I know Father Lizzie from TikTok, so I'm like a huge fan, and she was on my book launch team. So shout out to Father Lizzie if you're listening. Thank you very much. My name is Pastor L. Dowd. I use pronouns like she and they, and I am an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, which is a mainline Protestant Lutheran denomination, the largest Lutheran denomination in the United States, and obviously the one that ordains women and queer people. So um, on top of uh, being a pastor, I'm a, I'm a pastor for a Lutheran Episcopal campus ministry on the South Loop here in Chicago. And on top of that, I'm also do some community organizing. Right now I'm organizing uh, with an organization here in Chicago known as Soul, which works at the intersection of race and class on Chicago's South and West Sides. And I'm also an author, an author of the book Baptized in Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionist, which was published uh, last August by Broadleaf Books. And I I basically, you know, I kind of decided to write the book after like a long process of, of thinking about it and reflecting and, and discerning. Basically, I, I grew up in Iowa in a nice, predominantly white suburb, just like nice white Midwestern girl. And I I grew up thinking, you know, that I cared about things like justice or ending racism. But in reality, because of my experiences, I I really, there's a lot of roadblocks in my ability to really contribute to any like meaningful way of dismantling white supremacy, my own sort of internalized white supremacy, my own ideas um, about things like, you know, tone policing or respectability. And so this book was a book about my conversion. It's a conversion story from what MLK called the white moderate in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, You know, he says that the biggest obstacle to justice is not the KKK, but actually like white moderates who are like, yeah, great ideas that you have, um, you know, civil rights leaders, but could you please slow down and ask a little bit more nicely. And so that was me. I was that white moderate. I was raised that way. And um, this was my conversion story about how through my participation in the Ferguson uprising in the streets of St. Louis and Ferguson, through experiencing and seeing state violence for myself, through arrests and tear gas and rubber bullets, and especially through the deep relationships that I formed on the streets um, I was converted. I was converted away from 
this socialization I had into being a white moderate and I became an abolitionist, meaning I work for an end to prisons and policing. So that's, you know, that's the, the gist of the story. And as a way of saying thank you to the, the people who taught me and, and the people that I learned from the black activists on the streets of Ferguson, all of the money from the book that I would make is redistributed to black activists and liberation organizations, bail funds, family members who've lost loved ones to state violence, political prisoners, stuff like that. Oh my gosh, that is so good. Everything so far. And I just want you to know, I felt like you wrote this book for me and for so many like me that are identify as Christian and are evolving and looking to, you know, do more. And we're, we're looking for information like this. So it was just so great to get my hands on this book and see this conversion story. Cause I, I just was, I was underlining everything. Um, so my first question um, throughout your preface in chapter one, pulling back the veil, you're really talking about your education and how you re- really had to relearn things from a different lens. Things like hearing about the Black Panther Party at school were different about what you were hearing in real time and the, uh, the definition of abolition. I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a bit about why that was important for you and why it's important for other white folks of faith to relearn things through this different lens. Yeah, you know, again, like I had some pretty good teachers growing up, but I was still within this system of of this like white suburban public school system. And so when we talked about things in school like racism, first of all, we rarely talked in in my community growing up about racism or white supremacy. And when we did talk about it, we very much talked about it as if it was something that happened in the past and that it was something that was kind of over and um, sort of, you know, thank you, MLK, for solving racism in the civil rights movement. Um, we definitely didn't talk about the ways that racism continues today. And we also didn't talk about the ways that racism is more than just sort of individualized, internalized bias, but is really actually institutional and systemic, meaning it's embedded in the foundation of our beloved institutions. And that means our, you know, criminal punishment system, but also it, it means the white church, right? In the United States. And so, um, so much of my framework for looking at the world was like hyper individualistic. It was a whitewashed version of the past. Um, I had learned, you know, that the that the the MLK, a very whitewashed, docile, polite version of MLK, was like the correct way to protest. Right? That MLK sort of asked nicely and wasn't that good of him, and which is, you know, pretty much very ahistorical. MLK um, was incredibly radical, and it was radical enough to get him killed. And with white people at the time of his death, his his approval rating is similar to the approval rating of sort of the black liberation movements today, right? Like he was not a popular character while alive. And so, um, but now, you know, we kind of learned about or talked about a very domesticated, whitewashed, tame version, safe version of MLK as the good protester, the good justice worker. And then there was, you know, maybe more militant, uh, leaders like in the Black Panthers and they were bad. They were violent, right? They were the opposite of MLK because they were, they were so violent. And um that was the narrative that I had been taught was, you know, the Black Panthers were violent. Like MLK just said, oh no, we have to love everyone and nonviolence and the Black Panthers want were ready for war. 
I didn't learn um, that the Black Panther Party was the Black Panther Party for self-defense, that I didn't learn uh, that, you know, nationally at the level of the FBI, that our government was infiltrating and surveying and literally killing Black liberation activists to disrupt movements. I didn't know that. And so the picture that I had, you know, of the Black Panthers was like, they're the bad guys. I didn't hear about things like the Black Panthers um, organizing free breakfast programs or community uh, clinics or education programs or um, know your rights clinics, right? Like all of these things that are, that are so important. Um, and my framework for understanding violence was also very narrow. Um, in the book, I kind of asked the question, like, what counts as violence and who gets to decide if your um, people are systematically being targeted and picked off by the United States government? Like, a party for self-defense makes sense. And self-defense is a lot different than the sort of violent extremism that I had been sold as a narrative. Um, and so I really, not only learning this history, not only gave me like a, a broader way of understanding liberation movements of the past and also liberation movements in our current moment, but it also, you know, helped me to start thinking critically about, huh, why didn't I learn these things in school? Who benefits from that? Who decides the sort of things that I learn in school and who benefits from that narrative? What things have been kept from me? And why is that, right? And and the answer often is to further white supremacy and to further, you know, whiteness as the seat of power. Oh my gosh, yes. And I want to say you did such a great job kind of peeling back those layers. Like if I was just, you know, a new reader coming in, never hearing these things, you did it in such a way that was like, wow, oh my gosh. And I want to say the... Um, the biggest part that I feel like you gave me language for that I didn't have language for before was when you were talking about white niceness. And I mean, I just want to read this section real quick because honestly, it reminded me when Jesus was going off on the seven woes to the Pharisees in his day. So I'm just going to read a little quote because I think we all need to hear this. Okay. You say, white people use niceness and civility dishonestly. We say we value niceness, but what we really value is being in charge of what niceness looks like and when it's appropriate by our own standards. We're addicted to control. We say we value niceness, but we look away when the state, with our tax dollars and on our behalf, is slaughtering our siblings. We value security. We say we value niceness, but we silence anyone who dissents to the genocide of white supremacy. We value peace. And you go on to point out a few specific things that white niceness values. And this to me was so, so powerful. And I'm just curious what, like, how did that come to you? Because it was like so crucial and I, I didn't see it coming and it was so powerful to read. I think, um, you know, a lot of, when you said this book felt like it was written literally for you as like a nice white lady, maybe grew up in the suburbs or whatever church lady, like, um, yeah, that's because like who it was written for? It was written for me before 2014, right? And so um, this is a major lesson that I had to learn and I continue to have to learn because it is so ingrained. And I think there's also a really gendered element to this, right? Particularly 
for those of us who are women or have been socialized as women, there's this idea that it's really important for us to not make anyone uncomfortable, to not raise tension, to be small and polite and accommodating. Um, and unfortunately, oftentimes that sort of like refusal to deal with conflict or refusal to deal with tension, or there's just like lack of endurance or tolerance for any kind of conflict or tension can really be a major roadblock in liberation. So the point of direct action um, protests is to raise tension. It's like in order to redistribute tension, it's not sort of, um, you know, creating tension that's that's not there. It's revealing this tension that already exists. So an example I give a lot is like my black teenage kids, when they leave the house, they feel tense. They have to think, they have to look around. Like, do my neighbors know it's me? Are they going to call the cops if a white neighbor sees me? Um, can I wear my hoodie? Can I have my hood up? Gosh, it's really cold, but am I going to look suspicious? Like, are there cops on the street? My black teenagers feel tense all the time. And it's a tension that isn't their fault. It's the fault of white supremacy and the fault of the police state. And so when we protest against that sort of thing, what we're doing is not creating tension. What we're doing is redistributing that tension that's already there and bringing it to the state, to the police department and saying, like, look at this, look at this poison, look at this tension that, that, you know, is a result of your actions, like you have to deal with it. Um, and if we're so committed to niceness and like making sure that no one feels uncomfortable, um, you know, what we're really saying is only oppressed people can feel uncomfortable and people like me or people in power, people I identify with, they should never be made to feel uncomfortable. And that's at the expense of other people who are already suffering. So this um, addiction to niceness or just like not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to make anyone upset, not wanting to, not wanting to like threaten those relationships. Right. That, that was continues to be, you know, maybe my biggest challenge because of course, like, I want people to like me, right? I want people to like want to be around me. I don't want to be the person who's always like, yeah, um, what about white supremacy, right? Like that that doesn't feel good. But what feels even worse now that I understand the way that white niceness functions is having that blood on my hands and being complicit in the kind of violence that happens when we're too nice to say something and fight back. Oh my gosh. Let's just let that sit because that is so good. You had mentioned in your book, um, meeting Ruby Sales and talking with her and even encountering Audre Lorde from the voice of Ruby Sales. And I met Ruby Sales when I was doing an art project for the children at the border, an art activism project. And I feel like one of the things that she directly said to me too, was like, you can't be nice. Like your art can't be nice. If you are going to do something to make change, it can't be nice. And I, I was just so shocked when I heard that because I didn't realize because my normal is white niceness, you know? So, um, and I loved seeing that art was showing up in your story. There was like creativity showing up through the, um, the action that was happening at the protest. And I'm just curious for you, how do you see creativity and art showing up in activism? And how do you see that showing up in action oriented faith as well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the state, the empire, sort of like the powers that be almost inevitably have more money and resources and, and even like time. Right. Um, and so the, one of the things that, uh, 
that liberation movements have, that protest movements have, um, kind of in our arsenal is our creativity. And I think, you know, spiritually, we know that that is a reflection of a creative God. It's also like very much a hallmark of the abolition movement. Uh, Dr. Angela Davis, who uh, is one of the architects of the abolition movement, talks about abolition as, you know, primarily a positive strategy, right? Like, yes, you hear the word abolition and you think abolish, get rid of, like getting rid of prisons and policing. And it is, it is that. But it's more than that, right? Abolition is about building stuff. It's about building the kind of world where everyone has what they need to thrive. And that when things go wrong, we know and love each other enough to figure it out together. And so it really is about about building, right? It's about creating. And so we saw that reflected, you know, in protest movements with like giant paper mache pieces or like super creative um, protests, like concepts. We also see it even just in the way that activists like encourage us to like dream and believe in a better future, like that is using our spiritual imagination, which is like inherently prophetic, inherently creative. Um, And, you know, death dealing forces are all about destruction, destruction of life, repression, control. Liberation is about freedom. And what we do with that freedom is things like rest and play and create. And so any moment that we're doing those things now, any time that we're creating, we're making art, we're writing, we're, we're you know creating music. Those are glimpses of this this promised future that we can have, and reminders of what we're working toward. Oh, that is so good. Um, I've even seen in the San Francisco Bay Area in California there are even continued activists that are teaching how to use creativity in in protest signs and things like that in using positive language. Like this is what we want to see instead of this. I just think that is so powerful. Um, so you had mentioned the, the form of making music as well. And I was so moved to see that show up. I think it was your friend KB that started a chant, you know, like this resistance song. And that's where you really started to see that your endurance was different than those around you you had mentioned that the type of endurance that you were seeing was full of like grit and resilience. It wasn't about just sitting there and taking it if the answer was not what we wanted. And I'm just curious, um, cause you say white Christians in general don't have this kind of endurance. It's a gift given to people often find themselves on the underside of power dynamics. When did you start to see that difference for you and start mm-hmm. working toward creating that in yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really thought, you know, Michael Brown was killed August 9th, 2014. And like, I really thought that like, yeah, maybe, you know, the police officer was going to get away with this for a little bit, but definitely within a couple months, there'd be a trial and, and kind of all of this would be um, wrapped up nicely with a neat little bow. Right. I just sort of thought I had maybe watched um, instead of like participating really fully in liberation movements, I had really kind of watched like glamorized, I don't know, made for TV specials about like, protest movements where it's like by the end of the two hours, it's like at the end, you know, there's like, you know, hopeful music playing. And then there's like the, the, the like text on the screen that's like, and this person went on to be the first, this person and this person and this law was passed that, right. And it's just like all wrapped up in a nice little bow. And um, I realized that, 
and I've seen this actually a lot sort of post 2020 uprisings, a lot of people in 2020, white people in particular, it was like their first time really actively putting their body on the line for black liberation or being part of a wider movement for liberation. Um, and, you know, there was maybe what seemed like a little bit of progress or some hope and we all sort of pat ourselves in the back. And then it's kind of like, oh, we see, you know, maybe we see the backlash and we see how um, slippery and shapeshifty the demon of white supremacy is and how it still has sort of its, you know, it has its claws in us. And, and it's like, wow, it's, it's not like the end of this movie is not all wrapped up nicely. Like, wow, I don't just go to a couple protests and, and then the problem is solved check box. Right. Um, and I've seen, you know, in myself, like I was this person, which is how I can recognize that happening, you know, in the past couple of years, there's just like this huge level of disappointment of like, well, I did the thing, right? Like we marched in the streets and we did the thing. And, um, I thought you were listening and isn't this solved, right? And and can't we can't can't this just be done? And um it's definitely like it's definitely like being naive. Um, but I also think it's because, you know, endurance also reminds me of sort of like exercise, right? Like when you haven't like run for a long time or something and you try to go running, like Whew, it's hard. Like you can barely breathe. Like your heart is pounding. Like your body is not like built up the ability to do that. And um, if, same for us, for, for many white folks, we have not built up the endurance. We have not practiced the muscle of many of, of this liberation work, many of the aspects of this liberation work. And so for example, we experience like a little bit of tension or a little bit of disappointment. And we're like, we treat it like a serious career ending like injury and we're like down for the count. Right. Whereas other people, particularly, you know, like KB that you mentioned is like black trans Jewish KB has some resistance, right? Like KB has some endurance and is just like resilient. Right. Um, KB shouldn't have to be that way. Right. Um, and yet this is like one of the ways that God works very mysteriously through these things that are so awful. It's kind of like, the spirit creeps in with gifts. And so KP um, and other press people have the kind of endurance to be like, I, I see this disappointment or, or I see this setback and I will continue surviving sort of in spite of it. Right. Um, and so the challenge then for those of us who are, are white is like, we have to actually practice that. We have to practice feeling the tension. And just like the first time you lift, you know, 10 pound weights, it feels really heavy, but you know, after the 20th pound time, 20th time you lift 10 pound weights, feels a little bit lighter. Like you build up endurance, you build up muscle. We have to, we really have to exercise those muscles. Like our muscles um, are weaker. Our muscles towards endurance and towards, you know, freedom fighting are weaker because we haven't had to deal with that in the same way. So the endurance that I saw out there in Ferguson, in St. Louis, and also, you know, still in Chicago too, with the activists here that, that I am in community with, it is, um, remarkable and admirable. And yet I also don't want to romanticize it because like the, the sort of, um, cost to that, right. Like it shouldn't be that way. Yes, that is so good. And one of the things that you talk about as well as white folks, we can come in either coming in real hot, like we just learned the thing and we want to do action and we'll come in with what you called messy action, or we'll just get so overwhelmed that we won't even do anything. And I appreciated that you even shared the times that you failed at your journey along the way, because I felt that was so real for those of us who are on the journey as well. And I'm just curious, 
how do you, or what would you recommend to folks to slow down long enough to thoughtfully engage without completely overwhelming ourselves and, and just stopping? Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, there's kind of like, like you said, these two kind of pitfalls that many of us as white folks, um, fall into. And one of them is sort of like, uh, endless reflection, right? Kind of treating, treating white supremacy, like a really interesting thought experiment in which we like sit down and, you know, join a bunch of book studies. And then we feel like we did something now. Don't get me wrong. I obviously think book studies are important. I literally wrote a book that's like made for book studies, right? Like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there on the book studies, but the problem is sometimes, um, you know, I, I see this actually a lot in white progressive spaces. We think that having the right beliefs inside our heads from the couch comfy is enough as opposed to really getting out there and, and putting our bodies on the line. And, and that's really, it's also gives us a very thin understanding, right? Because there's not that embodied reality. And then on the flip side, sometimes, and this is definitely a thing I have fallen into. Sometimes uh, white folks get in this space where it's like, we see something horrible on the news. We're flooded with white guilt. And then we're sort of like, I have to do something. I have to do something. And sort of like frantically start taking like very messy action all over the place. Um, and action is good. And yet um, a bunch of messy white people can definitely do more harm than good. And so it's really important. It, it has been really important for me to sit back and think like, what are my intentions here? Who am I listening to? Whose direction am I following? Who am I accountable to? Um, am I doing this sort of performatively so that everyone can know I'm a good white person and not like those white people? Am I trying to earn the kind of proverbial anti-racism scout badges? Is it like another notch on my, you know, on my on my uh, anti-racism bedpost or like whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. Is this sort of some like trophy um, or is this really about what it's about? And so what has been really important for me is an action reflection model in which, yes, we pause and we assess and we think. And this is something that's really important that we actually don't do alone. This is not like whiteness is so hyper-individualistic that frequently we think of reflection as like me writing in my journal by myself, but actually the best reflection we have and the best discernment that we have is in, is in our community where we know each other well and we're honest with each other and we can trust each other and we can push and pull a little bit and, and we can ask those questions like, what is this current moment? What is God calling us to? What is our next step? And then when we can thoughtfully take our next step, you know, we take real action, right? And again, we take action in community. There's no, there's no sort of like white savior, individualistic, you know, lone wolf superstars here. We do this in community. We follow the leadership of black activists. We follow the leaders um, who are already on the ground, who are on the front lines, who live this day in and day out. And once we take that action again, we reflect in our community, right? With the people that we're accountable to. And we think to ourselves, how did that go? What did we learn? How did we feel? What does that teach us about ourselves and God and the universe and our community? And because of that, what is our next step? What is our next challenge? And, and again, these are not decisions we make alone. We make them together in community. So that has been really, really important to me. And it's why um, I'm so grateful to have sort of like a, a a protest home in Seoul, the organization that I'm on the board for here in Chicago, um, because it's people that know me and know like when to, you know, tell me the truth um, and who love me and who see, you know, that we're like, we're really in it together. We're really in, the, in it for each other um, and for our collective liberation. Oh, that is so good. And I would say in my own journey, that's been so true. You can join a book club, you know, read how to be an anti-racist with a group of white people. And you can only get so far until you have those real relationships with other people who know you and can speak 
into your blind spots in a way that other white people cannot. I just think that is so powerful. What did you call that model? An action reflection model. Oh my gosh, I'm writing that down. Yeah. That so, so, so this is something um, like the language for that I learned from, you know, community organizing training. Um, and I only recently, because I was reading uh, Apollo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yes. Was yes. Like, oh my gosh, this is where that's from, right? Like I had I had been a part of like community conversations using that kind of framework and, and that's where it's from. So um, for folks who are like interested in some more just like really foundational rad reading, highly recommend. Oh my gosh. Yes. Everyone. Oh, okay. I could go off on that for a while, but I'm going to pause. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back. Um, okay. You talk about, you had hard already mentioned joy in our conversation and you have a whole chapter on joy's resistance. And one of the things that I love, I love that you name people by their names in your book. You talk about mama cat and she believed that food could heal people. And she literally is cooking for you guys right down at the police station. Yeah. So I saw that food was a piece of joy for you. And I'm curious what, what other forms do joy take in your life in this form of resistance? Yeah, I was literally about to tell another food story. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, go there, please. Um, <laughs> I like, I'm Italian. I like live for food. So, yes. Um, um, so again, Soul, my organizing home here in Chicago, the um, executive director's name is Tanya Watkins. She's mentioned a couple times in the book and obviously in the acknowledgments. And um, before the pandemic, obviously the pandemic has definitely changed this for us a little bit. But before the pandemic, she used to say that any meeting without food could have been an email. And I just like think that is amazing. Like there's something, you know, it doesn't have to be around food, right? Like I actually am, I'm in recovery, um, long time recovery, but I'm in recovering from an eating disorder. So I also, for those of you who like food is tough or you have serious allergies or health issues, I actually have gastroparesis. So food is hard for me too. Um, you know, I get that too, but there's, so it doesn't have to be food, but there's something about a very like embodied sense of coming together. And so food is a really great example because it's, it's sensual. It involves your senses, you know, like you smell, taste, touch, all of that stuff, your food. Um, and so other sort of embodied moments of joy that were like super, a huge part of protest in Ferguson and St. Louis, um, and, and here too, um, is like dancing. Like there were so many dance parties. And in fact, like there were some people, um, who would kind of be like, talk down on the dance parties of these like young black activists um, dancing in the streets. They're like, look, they don't even actually, they're not actually as serious protesters protesting. Like they're just trying to have a block party. Like they don't care about this, like whatever. And it's like, no, absolutely. Like that is absolutely not true, especially for young black folks. Um, you know, any moment that you experience joy in a world, you know, that's trying to take joy from you, trying to take your life from you, as Alexis Templeton told me, like anytime you're experiencing joy is an act of resistance. And so like, what is more revolutionary than dancing in the streets when like in those same streets, like the blood of your siblings is like, you know, staining the pavement, right? Like there's something saying like you cannot take this from us. You think you can take all of this from us and you can, and you've harmed us and it's real. Um, and yet we don't give you ultimate control here. Like we are, we are free people and we behave as free people. And that means parties and dancing and, and all kinds of stuff. We also did, um, another example of sort of like joy, uh, as resistance in this way is that there was like art moments, right? Like art, art therapy, um, 
there was some activists and, and my spouse, Adam, uh, was an art major in undergrad. So he didn't lead this, but he, you know, participated in a lot of this or, you know, kind of helped in these efforts, uh, with like art stuff with some of the kids who lived on Canfield, who had really seen a lot of this, like really traumatic stuff after Mike was killed during the protests and just doing like art with the kids and like art as a, you know, vehicle for emotional catharsis and also as a vehicle for spiritual imagination about like our prophetic hope for the future. Um, and also just like fun. Like it is just fun to make buttons. It is just fun to like play with paint, right? Like of, of people of all ages, like just having fun. And so, um, you know, again, like as I'm thinking too, these, this joy, all of these joyful forms are like very creative forms, right? We're talking food, we're talking movement, we're talking art, like we're talking um, building and creating. And there is definitely like some joyfulness in that. Oh, yes, I love that. And I think it's so important to name those things as well for folks who are, you know, maybe picking this book up for the first time and not understanding the the weight of being out there and protesting. It is extremely heavy of like the whole point of it is heavy. And so anytime that joy can be carved out is such a beautiful resistant piece that needs to happen. It has to happen during a justice movement. Okay. And um, on that, I also wanted to just talk real quick. I appreciated so much that you included a chapter on the cost of this work. Um, you did name the misconception, you know, like we think activism is so glorious and glamorous, but really there is a cost and not only your personal safety, but you mentioned how your husband's career was affected or threatened and then your children's safety. And I know those are some of the, the hangups that people really will lean on rather than doing, leaning into engagement. They'll just say, oh, well, all these things are barriers. And I'm just curious what what helped push you beyond that? Like, what can we say to those folks who are still hanging out behind those fears? Yeah. I just remember, you know, um, really well-meaning loved ones, like truly well-intentioned loved ones saying to me like, oh, should you really be involved in this? Like, um, you know, be, be careful, be safe. Right. Like, and I just remember thinking, and these were white loved ones who said this to me. Right. I just remember thinking to myself, like, be safe. Um, as long as there is white supremacy, as long as there is state violence, my children, my family is not safe, right? Um, and this is, you know, very related to what Ruby Sales said to me, quoting Audre Lorde, like, your silence will not protect you. We sometimes think that inaction is safer because it's like what we're used to, but actually it's in our, our inaction that is putting us and our neighbors and our siblings and the gospel in danger. Like right now, we're used to it. So white folks, like sometimes we feel removed from it, but right now there is very real, very present danger. Um, and so I think for me, the accountability of tucking my kids in at night and being like, I have to be real. I have to like, look at my babies and I have to be real about the world that they're waking up in tomorrow. And like, if I didn't do everything I could, you know, with every cell in my body and every breath in my lungs, I, I could never, I couldn't live with myself. Right. And so, um, I think, you know, not everyone has black kids. Um, and honestly, because of segregation, so many white people really do not have deep relationships with black folks. Um, 
and so first of all that you know that's an issue right like we should be building relationships with one another and and also um you know to think about that same passion and fear and hopes that I have for, for my children, that same feeling, um, times a million is the feeling that God has for all of God's children. And especially those who are most marginalized, especially for black and brown children. And so thinking about that and thinking about, um, you know, our duty as Christians to live into our baptismal promises, to work for justice and peace and to live out our faith, um, in a way that makes a difference for our neighbor, so I think I do think it's really important. Um, I really do think it's important to talk about like the cost and the risks. Uh, and the reason I think that's important is because so often I think that like white people are unprepared. I was very unprepared. Um, and it's really important to know like what we're getting into so that we can sort of be ready and prepare ourselves and, and support each other. Um, but yeah, there's this, like, there is this, uh, there's this idea from some people that like protesting is like, we're all Katniss Everdeen and it's like very sexy <laughs> yes. or something, and we're all, getting, yes. we're all getting like large checks from George Soros, which is also like a, an anti-Semitic trope in case, you know, that didn't register for people. Um, but like, you know, there's like this, this idea that like somehow there's this like really cushy gig of, of being an activist. And of course there's definitely, you know, maybe figureheads that have like a more comfortable life. I'm not trying to say that's not true. Um, also a laborer deserves their wages as scripture says, but, um, but really like the, the cost is really real. And also, you know, part of sharing for me, the cost and the threats and the things that we experience, the cost of my physical and mental health and, and, and all of that, um, part of the reason I wanted to be honest about that was then to draw attention to how much more serious the cost was, um, for the black activists that I was on the streets with, right? Like I had very serious life altering things happen to me and there are several activists from Ferguson who are dead. And Josh Williams is still in prison almost eight years later, right? As a political prisoner. So there's tons of activists who have lost their jobs, like the health issues, all of that. Like it's, it's so serious. And if, if part of sharing my experience and the cost that I experienced was reminding everyone that I was like wrapped in bubbles of privilege. So if this is what me as like a nice white lady with like a supportive boss and supportive family, if this is what I'm experiencing, imagine, you know, if you're like a poor black um, teenage activist who's out on the streets, like your experience, the, the cost is so, so serious. And yet again, like the cost of not doing this work is also just like, very, 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 very real. Mm. Wow. I think I just thought that was so helpful to grapple with Mm -hmm. as we were coming to a close with the book. And it sounded like the last chapter really felt like a true call to action, especially for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, who was extremely radical, who was doing all these revolutionary political moves. And I'm curious, what do you hope for when a white person, a white Christian specifically, picks up your book and reads it through? What's your biggest hope? One of the reasons, or one of the main reasons that I wrote this book uh, was not to like cast myself 
as an expert or like someone who has it figured out because I a hundred percent do not like, again, I don't, <laughs> yes. really, I don't think that white people can be like experts in anti-racism um, in general, but even if there were right, like I would not be one of them. Like I'm very much still learning. And so one of my hopes for the book um, was not to be an expert, but to be a companion, to be vulnerable about my own life, my own experiences, my own inner thoughts, and, and some of the things that I was, you know, afraid to say out loud, but definitely had a stronghold on my heart, to be honest and vulnerable about those things in a way that maybe it would create space for other white people to be honest and vulnerable about those things too. And if I could say, listen, these are some of the things I thought, these are some of the things I learned, maybe we could create space as a companion, you know for other folks to rethink their thoughts too. And for us to continue in this conversion process. So that was, that was a major hope of mine to sort of um, make it. Yeah. Create the space or the opportunity for other nice white Christian folks to reflect. Another hope for me um, was for Christians in particular, and um, especially Christians who have, you know, maybe like a more liturgical tradition, like the one that I come from in, in the Lutheran church. I think, you know, I grew up taking communion or seeing a baptism and it was just like, it was very just like, I don't know, disconnected for me or very spiritual or like nice or isn't this sweet or something, but it really um, said nothing to me about what was going on outside the walls of the church. And so it was also really important to me um, you know, to make these explicit connections to things like scripture, to things like our tradition, to things like baptism, to things like communion, so that when we're inside church and we hear these stories, when we hear the crucifixion, we're thinking George Floyd. When we're in our church and we're eating communion, we're thinking Mama Cat and the way that she fed as a way of protest and like healed the movement, right? When we're doing baptism together in church and when we, um, you know, we see like a baby or, or an adult or whoever get baptized and we're making these promises to one another to all be part of one family under God, we think about the ways that we're not living that out outside of these you know walls of the church, that there are real divisions based on things like race, um, the way that white supremacy is keeping us from fully living into that. And so my hope is that when we're inside the church and we're participating in these things that are so sacred to us, it makes it more connected and real to what's going on outside of the church. Um, and that hopefully then we will move, be moved outside of the church. And when we are on the streets, we'll have the opportunity to recognize the way that God is already at work there, right? We're not like necessarily like, I don't know, bringing God out there. God is already at work. Um, you know, the divine is already like right there with people who are suffering, people who are struggling for justice. And so my hope is by connecting some of, you know, maybe the familiar stories or verses or, or elements of worship to some of these stories out on the streets that we'll have a more, a, a deeper understanding of the holiness of those moments of resistance. Oh my gosh. Oh, I mean, Pastor L, that is like what we need. <laughs> that right there is like everything. And I could literally listen to you talk all day about this and how action-oriented faith can happen because literally that's what I've been searching for. And I'm so pumped to hear you talk about it, but I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time. So before I let you go, will you just let us know what you're working on now? Yeah. So I continue to pastor at Southwood campus ministry, which is really, really great. And I also, you know, continue to organize the soul. And so if you are interested 
um, in seeing the work that Soul is doing or supporting the work that Soul is doing, you can look up Soul online. It's um, Southsiders Organized for Unity and Liberation, aka Soul, and like definitely could use the support. Soul's doing just really great work. Um, I also continue with my public ministry. I kind of call you know like the books and the speaking and the podcast and whatever. Um, and so if you're interested in sort of following my public ministry. Um, and like learning alongside me. And I'm like interested in, in all of your listeners, like getting to know you and the lessons that you're learning about God too. You can find me at my website, ldowd.com um, or on the socials. I'm on TikTok at uh, ldowd ministry. I'm on Facebook at ldowd ministry. Um, and then I'm on, you know, Insta and uh, Twitter at how now Brown Dowd. So if you're interested in that stuff on my website, if you're like, I want to see L preach, um, there's a calendar on my on my website that says like when I'm doing workshops that are open to the public, when I'm preaching, if they're online or in person or both or what. Um, so you can definitely check that out. I also post my sermon manuscripts and, and blog posts and all kinds of other stuff. And you can also find out where to buy the book. Again, Baptized in Tear Gas is through Broadleaf Books and it's available in print, in ebook and in audiobook. And I, uh, I narrated the audiobook too. So that's kind of fun. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. So everyone hear that, go buy this book, Baptize in Tear Gas. It'll literally change your life mm -hmm. and then go support Soul and then support Elle, obviously, and give her a follow. Um, thank you so much. I just cannot continue. I can't wait to continue to support your work. I'm just so excited about what you're doing and the things that I've learned. I'm so excited to put them into practice, into thoughtful practice. So thank you so much for your time today and we're excited to continue to support you. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to connect. 